be reading a few passages today or snippets from Exodus chapters 11 and 12. We'll begin in chapter 11, verse 1. Let's give our attention now to the reading of God's holy, inspired, and inerrant word. Exodus chapter 11, beginning in verse 1. The Lord said to Moses, Yet one plague more I will bring upon Pharaoh and upon Egypt. Afterward, he will let you go from here. When he lets you go, he will drive you away completely. Speak now in the hearing of the people that they ask every man of his neighbor and every woman of her neighbor for silver and gold, jewelry. And the Lord gave the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians. Moreover, the man Moses was very great in the land of Egypt, in the sight of Pharaoh's servants and in the sight of the people. So Moses said, thus says the Lord, about midnight I will go out in the midst of Egypt And every firstborn in the land of Egypt shall die, from the firstborn of Pharaoh, who sits on his throne, even to the firstborn of the slave girl, who is behind the handmill, and all the firstborn of the cattle. There shall be a great cry throughout all the land of Egypt, such as there has never been, nor ever will be again. But not a dog shall growl against any of the people of Israel, either man or beast, that you may know that the Lord makes a distinction between Egypt and Israel." And all these your servants shall come down to me and bow down to me, saying, Get out, you and all the people who follow you. And after that, I will go out. And he went out from Pharaoh in hot anger. Then the Lord said to Moses, Pharaoh will not listen to you, that my wonders may be multiplied in the land of Egypt. Verse 10, Moses and Aaron did all these wonders before Pharaoh, and the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart. And he did not let the people of Israel go out of his land. If you'll turn over now to chapter 12, beginning in verse 21. Then Moses called all the elders of Israel and said to them, Go and select lambs for yourselves according to your clans and kill the Passover lamb. Take a bunch of hyssop and dip it in the blood that is in the basin and touch the lintel and the two doorposts with the blood that is in the basin. None of you shall go out of the door of his house until the morning. For the Lord will pass through to strike the Egyptians. And when he sees the blood on the lintel and on the two doorposts, the Lord will pass over the door and will not allow the destroyer to enter your houses to strike you. You shall observe this rite as a statute for you and for your sons forever. And when you come to the land that the Lord will give you, as he has promised, you shall keep this service. And when your children say to you, what do you mean by this service? You shall say, it is the sacrifice of the Lord's Passover. For he passed over the houses of the people of Israel in Egypt when he struck the Egyptians, but spared our houses. And the people bowed their heads and they worshiped. Then the people of Israel went and did so as the Lord had commanded Moses and Aaron. So they did. Turn over to verse 50. All the people of Israel did just as the Lord commanded Moses and Aaron. And on that very day, the Lord brought the people of Israel out of the land of Egypt by their hosts. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God remains forever. Let's pray. Oh God, we do thank you for your word. 
Thank you for preserving it for us that we might have it this morning. And we come to you now and ask that you would give us spiritual understanding. Father, would you open our eyes that we may behold wondrous things? Would you teach us and train us, correct us, rebuke us, make us more like Jesus? Help us to live for you. Help us to walk by faith. Father, I pray that you would especially help your people this morning. Tune their hearts, O God, to not only sing your praises, but to receive your word. And help me, O God, protect me from error. May the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be pleasing and acceptable unto you, O God. You are my rock and my redeemer. And we ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Tampa Bay Rays pitcher Jason Adam and four of his fellow teammates made the news this week. They made the news because they were resolved to be distinct. Last Saturday, the Major League Baseball team, Tampa Bay Rays, they hosted Pride Night at their stadium, Tropicana Field. And to commemorate it, players were given the option to wear special Pride-themed logos on their hats and on the sleeves of their jerseys. The logos being optional, Jason Adam and his four teammates politely declined to wear them. As you can imagine, not everyone was happy with this decision. Not everyone was pleased, and worldly wrath quickly descended upon them. Picked by the team to speak on their behalf with the media, Adam had this to say. He said, quote, this is a faith-based decision. If we put that logo on our bodies, we don't want to encourage that lifestyle since we believe in Jesus. Jesus, who encouraged us to live a lifestyle that would abstain from that behavior. It's not judgmental. It's not looking down. It's just how we believe that he has encouraged us to live, and it's for our good. When pressed further in the days after, one of the other abstaining players, whose name is Ryan Thompson, he had this to say. He said, if I believe the Bible is infallible and that everlasting life is attainable, yet I bow down to public opinion in the name of tolerance, is that really love? I don't think so. Instead, my view is to love my neighbor from all walks of life as abundantly as possible while trying my absolute best to advertise only for the kingdom of heaven. Faith like this seems a little rare these days, but faith like this is certainly commendable. No matter how much the world around us tries to condemn it. As the people of God, we're called to live what? In the world while not being what? Of the world. And while much of our pilgrimage through this reality in the world, but not of the world, will be defined by what we abstain from, whether we abstain from sin itself or from celebrating sin, God does, however, provide his people with their own distinctive marks. Marks that move our identity beyond what we abstain from, to root our identity in what we participate in, to the positive. This is clearly what is happening here in Exodus chapters 11 and 12. 
For over 400 years, God's people had been living in Egypt, suffering under this heavy yoke of bondage while clinging to the promise of a promised land to call home. And now on the heels of of nine, nine devastating plagues, against the hardened heart and the hardened resolve of an obstinate Pharaoh, God is going to finally set his people free. And as this 10th and final plague descends upon the land, God gives to his people a feast. He gives them a feast. He gives to them an ordinance, a holy remembrance. He gives them the Passover, a mark that will forever allow his people to set themselves apart Just as the text says at the end of chapter 11, verse 7, look what it says, that you may know that the Lord makes a distinction. The Lord makes a distinction between Egypt and Israel. The institution of the Passover recorded here provides a mark of distinction. I'll call it a mark of holy distinction for God's people. And it does so, first of all, by acting, acting as a physical and visible sign, a sign of that distinction. That's our first point this morning, if you're taking notes, our first of three S's. The Passover is a sign. All the plagues, all of them, that God had sent thus far also served to make a distinction between Israel and Egypt. But it's only here in the 10th plague that Israel is told to perform a demonstrative act, to do something to set itself apart from the Egyptians. In 12, 21 through 23, which we read, the people are told to do what? Right? They're told to sacrifice the lamb, to take the blood of the slaughtered lamb as a, a physical and visible sign of their distinction from the Egyptians. Right? They're to take that blood, each and every household. They had to physically apply that blood, that sign, the blood of the lamb. They had to put it on the doorframe of their respective homes in order to escape in order to escape from the 10th plague, the death of the firstborn. They had to do this to benefit from God's mercy. It was the physical presence of this visible sign. It says the Lord will go through and see it. When the Lord sees this sign, this sign yields protection and safety and salvation to the Israelites. Now, this whole event had already been foreshadowed in the life of Moses. You might remember, we kind of just skipped over it when we were there back in Exodus chapter 4. Back in Exodus chapter 4, you might recall that Moses was on his way back to Egypt after meeting with God at the burning bush. He's on his way back, and we're told in chapter 4, verses 24 through 26, you can turn back there if you would like, We're told that the Lord met him and sought to put Gershom, his firstborn son, to death. God was pursuing him to put Gershom to death. But Moses' wife, Zipporah, took a knife and she circumcised Gershom, who had not been circumcised to this point. 
She takes them, she circumcises them. If you read it, it's interesting details. She takes the blood and she smears it on him. That's weird. It's weird. But that's what she does. And the Lord responds. The text tells us at this point, the Lord ceased his pursuit. And not only did he cease his pursuit, what did he do? He proclaims the acceptance of Gershom into the covenant family. The Lord accepted Gershom. The Lord passed over in his wrath. Already, we have a picture of the Passover back in Exodus 4. So while that event refers to circumcision, it's not wholly disconnected from the Passover event that takes place here. For both circumcision and Passover are marks of distinction. They're marks of holy distinction, marks that not only set apart God's people, but that also serve as a sign here in this account seen by the Lord with results, protection, safety, rescue. So even today, even today, as we've already seen and will see later, God continues to use physical signs as seals of his promise to save his people from judgment. Just as God used circumcision and Passover here in the old covenant, so he has replaced those two with the new covenant signs of baptism and the Lord's Supper. Sacraments that set believers apart from the world. Sacraments that allow believers to proclaim that they belong to God. Sacraments that serve as signs pointing to grace and pointing to mercy that originates not within, but that originates outside of ourselves. Grace and mercy that functions to take us and our hearts and point us and point others to who? To Jesus Christ. It's a sign pointing to Jesus Christ. They are sacraments. They're sacraments that seal God's protection. They, they seal God's safety. They seal God's rescuing salvation for us. They are signs. So we see then that Passover serves as a physical and visible sign of holy distinction. That's the first thing I wanted you to see this morning. The second thing I want you to see is that Passover also reveals the need for a substitute. That's our second S this morning. Passover reveals the need for a substitute. God has already said that he's making a distinction. He's making a distinction with Israel. But this does not mean that Israel is wholly innocent in and of themselves. Remember in the account of the other nine plagues, God had graciously shielded Israel. How did he do so? Do you remember? By shielding the land of Goshen, right? Where they were dwelling. He shielded them. God had shielded them from the effects of those plagues. But now here in the 10th plague, God's not going to bypass Goshen this time. The plague will go through all the land of Egypt. God will go through even Israel's dwelling place as well. God will go through as the righteous judge, the one who judges justly, and he will judge whether or not they be Egyptian or Israelite. And Israel's means of rescue from this judgment 
is not going to be based upon their own bloodline. It's not going to be who their dad was. It's not going to be because of that. Israel's hope of rescue will be what? The blood of the Passover lamb. Without that, no matter who their father was, without that, they would be guilty. Why? Well, because God is holy, right? And they are what? Sinners. God is holy and they are sinners. And the wages of sin is death. They're just as much sinners as Pharaoh is, as the rest of Egypt are. But God, but God, being rich in grace and mercy, provides a way of salvation for his people. And he provides it through the blood of a substitute. I guess another way to say it, to say it more plainly, is something was required to die on the night of the Passover. Something had to die. Death and the shedding of blood were required. The people of Israel had two options. Firstborn son or the blood of the lamb. That was their options. But the fact that blood was required was not up for debate. Blood must be shed. So by requiring such a a substitute sacrifice, God was teaching his people right here, this early on in your Bible, he's teaching them the concept of substitutionary atonement. He's teaching them that one could die, die in place of another. One could die as a substitute for someone else. One could stand in the place. Of course, living on this side of the cross, we look at it with different glasses, don't we? We know that this Passover event foreshadows the work of Jesus Christ, the one whom John the Baptist declared to be the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. For Jesus, the one whom Peter, as we've already seen in our words of assurance this morning, declares to be a lamb without blemish and defect, which is a direct reference back to the lambs that were required for sacrifice, right? Jesus stood in the place of sinners. He stood in the place of sinners as he suffered and died upon the cross as Calvary. Just as the blood of the lamb was sufficient to rescue God's people from this 10th plague, so the blood of Jesus is so much greater and so much more sufficient to finally and fully rescue God's people from his wrath against sin. The blood of bulls and goats cannot take away sin. The blood of lambs cannot fully take away sin. Jesus Christ is the true and the greater sacrifice. He's the true and greater Passover lamb who was both priest and sacrifice and offered himself so that we might be set free from our bondage to sin and our bondage to death. Think about what we just sang this morning. What can wash away my sin? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Oh, fount of love. Divine that flows from my Savior's bleeding side. Only Christians can sing those lyrics and people will agree. You know how that sounds to people outside the faith? When I first started going to church as a teenager, I remember going, what are these people talking about? Do I have to take a bath in blood? But for those of us in Christ, it clicks. We know that we've been washed 
by the blood of the lamb. And we can have true peace. And we can have everlasting life, not in Canaan, but in the true Canaan, the true promised land of heaven. Passover reveals, I would say it screams the need for a substitute. A need we actually remind ourselves of every time we share the Lord's Supper together. One question we get asked a lot as elders here is, why do you celebrate the Lord's Supper every week here at the chapel? There's several answers to that question, but I think one of the most revealing ones in light of this passage is that Jesus himself took the occasion of the Passover meal to institute the supper. He didn't do this in a vacuum. He did it at the Passover meal. He did it and he declared that I'm inaugurating the new covenant in my blood. Not the blood of lambs, but my blood. To give to his church a tangible reminder of his substitutionary work to atone for their sins. And if we believe that to be true, and if we also understand ourselves, or maybe it's just me, how forgetful I am, how ungrateful I can be, how hard my own heart can prone to be when I neglect to remember just how great our rescue from sin is, then why wouldn't we want to be reminded? Why wouldn't we want to be confronted with this glorious truth? Why would we neglect such a gift of grace? Why would we withhold opportunity to partake of this feast that he gave to us? Because this feast increases our appetite for the greater feast to come in heaven. If Passover revealed our need for a substitute, then the Lord's Supper calls us to declare and enjoy the goodness and the greatness of our once and for all substitute, Jesus Christ, our Lord, who has indeed appeared and who has indeed saved us from God's wrath. And so we celebrate that when we come together to worship. So far this morning, we've seen that the Passover serves as a sign of holy distinction and that it reveals our need for a substitute. The last thing I want you to see this morning is that Passover also serves as a summons. It's a summons to faith and faithfulness. Passover is a summons to faith and faithfulness. You know, as we proceed through Exodus, you may have noticed that Moses shrinks back further and further as the story goes on. We start to hear less and less of Moses and more about God's mighty acts of deliverance and what's happening. But we don't want to take our focus off of Moses, right? We want to think about him and the reality in which he is walking. And I've often wondered what's going through his mind. He has gone in and out of Pharaoh's presence nine times now, plus a few others, right? And he's had mixed results, humanly speaking. He's had some somewhat hopeful ones, like, yeah, now we're finally gonna get to go. Wait, what? No? Think about Moses for a minute. Was he frustrated? Would you be? Was he discouraged? Maybe. Did he see those lack of results? that the people were still there, kept from going, and wonder why. <laughs> why, God, why, why another time? Why one more time? He didn't have some play card ahead of time. There'll be 10. Whatever's going on in his heart and his mind, there's something you can tell about Moses, though. 
he remains steadfast, doesn't he? Sure, you do get a glimpse. I don't want to look over it in 11.8 there. It gives us a glimpse of his internal processing and makes me feel good, right? Because sometimes I feel this way too, right? Uh, it says that he went out from Pharaoh in hot anger. Essentially, that in Hebrew, he's, he's furious. But even with that, what does Moses do? He remains obedient. He remains steadfastly obedient. He does all that God calls him to do. He continues to believe God. He continues to deliver God's message. He's not only a hearer of the word, but he's a doer of the word. He heard it, so he does it. And herein lies the key to the Passover as a summons to faith and faithfulness. You see, the the Passover is not only a contrast between God's judgment on and his deliverance from sin, It's also a contrast between belief in God's word and unbelief in God's word. When God gives Moses the instructions for Passover, God sends Moses to convey them to the people. He's like a modern day preacher. He's called to go to the people and to proclaim the pathway of salvation from God's judgment. This is what you have to do. This is how you're going to be rescued from this plague. Look in 24 through 27 of chapter 12. How do the people respond? I mean, he tells them, you have to observe this, teach it to your children. And look at the end of verse 27. And the people bowed their heads and they worshiped. Verse 28, then the people of Israel went and did so as the Lord had commanded Moses and Aaron So they did. And of course, 29 through 32 show that they do that. You see, God had provided the means for Israel's salvation from the judgment to come at this 10th plague, but he commanded them to respond. He wanted them to embrace it. God wanted them to believe that this is the means of salvation. But as we've already seen throughout the book of Exodus, even this act, is a gift from God. Even this act of believing, embracing is a gift. Their hearts could have been just as hard as Pharaoh's. In fact, if you try to read this like you're reading it for the first time ever, you kind of anticipate it, right? I mean, he's been doing all this, all these plagues are happening, now he's gotta go to the people and tell them this. You almost wouldn't be surprised given Israel's history if they were like, yeah, what? You want us to do what? Kill a lamb? Uh, that's worth a lot of money, right? That's, that's good for my family. You may take that. Oh, and you want me to put blood on my doorpost? You feeling all right, Moses? You have a fever, Moses? But that's not what happens. They don't have hard hearts. They worshiped. God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved Israel, gave them the gift of faith. God changed their heart. He had not only circumcised their outward flesh, but he had circumcised their hearts as well. He now summons them, calls them to exercise that faith in obedience to his word. The same is true today. The same is true today as we live in light of the true Passover lamb, Jesus Christ. Having rescued us from our bondage to death and the eternal wrath that our sin deserves, What are we called to? Continued faith, 
continued faithfulness in him. He calls us not only to believe the message of the gospel, but he calls us to live out the message of the gospel as well. Having taken upon ourselves the mark of baptism, by coming to the Lord's table week by week, rejoicing in the saving work of Christ on our behalf. So we're also sent out into the world as wholly distinct. We're set apart for God and his glory. I told little Lazarus that. By receiving this mark of baptism, you're set apart for God. Christians, when you were baptized, you were set apart for God. When you partake of the Lord's Supper, you're professing, you're being set apart renewed again, set apart for God. You're sent out into the world. You're a new creation in Christ. You're sent out to share your life in the gospel hope that's within you with a world hardened by sin. That doesn't sound so promising, does it? So I gotta go tell a bunch of people with hard hearts that they need to believe this too? Yes. But here's the best part. The results aren't up to you. You can't change hearts. Anybody need to be reminded of that today? You can't change hearts. Did you change your own? Because I didn't. I didn't. I didn't want anything to do with God. I didn't want anything to do with the gospel. I was for those people. But God, being rich in mercy, changed my heart. By grace, I've been saved. It was by grace. And so we're sent out with a message we're sent out with a message. That should give us great confidence. It's not up to me to change these things, to change hearts, to change these circumstances. I'm to be faithful. I'm to proclaim the Lord's grace. I'm to love more than I've ever loved before. I'm to stand up for truth, point people to the hope of Christ found in his word, and watch God work. Watch him work. So I'm gonna urge you this morning, to continue steadfastly in your faith as you live in this world. But remember this, you're not of this world. You're not of this world. If you belong to the Lord Jesus Christ, you are not of this world. Like our Christian brothers in Tampa Bay, you're gonna be asked to bear on your body the marks of all kinds of rampant sin and sinfulness. You're gonna be called on to identify with that which God has called sin, that which God tells you not to identify. I'm not even just talking about what they dealt with, but think about the world around you. Think about the things that you are called to, to celebrate. Think about the things that you are called to just tolerate. Think about the things that you are called to just turn another blind eye to. Think about the things that you're tempted to just run with. Well, it's okay. Think about that. Think about the sin and temptation. You're going to be called, screamed at, to forsake Christ, to forsake his word, and to live for yourself, and to live for sin. But instead, what this passage does, what I believe these marks of holy distinction do, is they call us. They call us to take up the Lord Jesus Christ himself, to take up his message and to continue to walk by faith in him and in his promises. There's no promise you won't be persecuted. He actually says you will be if you live for him. But live for him. 
rejoice in the great salvation you've been given. When we baptize, I like to encourage you, and I saved it for here instead of up there, remember your baptism. Remember your baptism. Rejoice in that. Partake of the Lord's Supper, as we will here in a minute. Do it with a renewed thankfulness. And stand firm. Stand firm against the attacks of the evil one. God has delivered you, Colossians 1 tells us. He's delivered you from the domain of darkness, and he's transferred you to the kingdom of his beloved son, Jesus Christ. You are his, and nothing's going to take that away from you, nothing. He's given us marks of distinction, holy distinction. So go ahead and wear those. Wear those with pride. But even more, wear them with great humility and overflowing thankfulness to God alone. Be the glory for the work that he has done in and through us. Amen and amen. Would you grab your bulletins?